like fifth grade, and I, I, I immediately went into the Fellowship of the Ring, but there's like a hundred pages uh, of like a party, and when I was in fifth grade, I just couldn't get through it, you know, I wanted, and so I, I finally picked it back up, you know, a couple years ago, and, and when I would finish one book, then I would uh, watch the movie with my wife, and, and, and it would be kind of fun for me to try to spot differences, and, and, and then I got really nerdy about it, and I started researching why they changed what they changed. You know, and I, and I started looking at how they portrayed Gandalf in the books as opposed to the movies. And if, if you think about the movies, the first time you meet Gandalf, he, he's not as imposing as you might think a wizard would be. He kind of bonks his head in the hobbit hole. He's a little bit uh, terrified of the enemies that are, that are out there. And, and so in the book, he's a lot more in control of himself. He's a lot more powerful or portrayed that way even even early on. And I, so, so I kind of began researching, well, why is that? Why did they make, make this change? And the director actually said that they made this change because in one sense, they felt like Gandalf was too powerful, that the audience wouldn't be able to relate to him. So they sort of brought him down to this level and they tried to lower the gap between Gandalf and, and man or, or hobbits, if you're reading Lord of the Rings. They wanted to humanize Gandalf. And so the reason we, we actually need a conference like this is because we, we have a similar temptation with God. We, we sort of want to humanize God. We want to we lower that gap between us and him. And, and so one of the ways that happens, one of the ways that, that Jeff talked about and Jaden's been talking about, is, is to sort of say something like, uh, well, I, I want to lessen God's justice I want to lessen God's wrath. I want to lessen God's anger. And I want to sort of bring him down here to my level. Well, we have a temptation to want to humanize God. And if we're not careful, all we're left with is kind of a powerful wizard, right? Not the God of the universe who is holy, holy, holy. And so some have tried to make this move by, by saying, well, the God of the Old Testament this way, the God of the New Testament is this way. You know, the God of the Old Testament is really judgy, and the God of the New Testament is love. Well, this is, this is obviously demonstrably false. Jeff disproved it. We've, we've seen it even in our small groups as, we, as we've talked about it. But it's actually not only demonstrably false from just looking at text and scripture, it's actually impossible because of God's very nature. We know that God does not change. Right? He says of himself in Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, I, the Lord, do not change. And, and, and amazingly, that's actually tied to the fact that he hasn't consumed his people. He hasn't destroyed them in judgment because he does not change. So God is immutable. He does not change. If he could change for the better, that would mean that he's something less than God right now. And if he could change for the worse, that would mean he'd be something less than God at that points. So God is immutable, but there's another thing that's true about God that we need to have as sort of a, a, a foundational understanding of God is that we, we don't just get to divide God up into little parts. And here's what I mean by that. When we take a conference like this and we're thinking about justice or wrath or judgment, and we think about mercy, the temptation is, well, maybe we just weigh these two things in a balance, and, and hopefully by the end of the conference, we see that, that mercy actually wins out at the end of the day. You know, yeah, God is, God is judgy, but he's actually only 10% justice. He's 50% mercy, so mercy wins 
at the end. This is not how God is. What God is, he is to the uttermost. What he is, he is to the fullest. And he always, ever acts in conjunction with his holy and unchanging nature. So there isn't this wrestling match between God's mercy and God's just judgment. God's judgment and his mercy are both perfectly expressed at the right time towards the right people. So when we come to the New Testament, then we're not surprised to see this sort of consistency between the Old and the New Testaments. And we aren't surprised that as Jesus comes, And he perfectly reveals to us the Father. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He is the Word in that sense. We're not surprised that Jesus, who perfectly reveals the Father, is both a a God of judgment and a God of mercy. So my goal is to do that, to look at the person of Christ, the one who reveals the Father, and see that he is both judge and he, is bo- and he is merciful. So in Luke chapter 3, look there in verse 15 if you have your Bible. I'm going to read verses 15 through 17. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them saying, he answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, But he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. What's happening in the Gospel of Luke, is as Luke develops in the first couple of chapters, there's this comparison between John the Baptist and, and Jesus. And over and over and over again, Jesus is greater. There's a, there's a greater promise. You know, John the Baptist is going to be a, a prophet like Elijah. Well, Jesus is going to be the Son of God. There's a greater conception, right? Uh, John the Baptist's parents are, are really old. They shouldn't be able to have children. But Jesus' mom is, is a virgin. It's completely impossible for her to have children. There's a greater announcement of their, their birth, right? John the Baptist's neighbors are involved. Jesus gets an angelic announcement to the shepherds. There's a greater mission. John the Baptist exists to prepare the way of the Lord. Jesus is the Son of God who has come to be the way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. So in the Gospel of Luke, there's a sense that, yeah, John is great. But Jesus is infinitely higher. He's infinitely greater than John the Baptist. And so what you have in our text is people are wondering, man, John the Baptist, he preaches with such fire. Maybe he's the Christ. Maybe he's the Messiah. And when they come to him and they're wondering this, he unashamedly says, you know what? I'm not even worthy to untie the strap of the sandal of Christ, of the Messiah. And one of the things that distinguishes John the Baptist from Jesus, one of those last things, this is why Jesus is greater than John the Baptist, is John the Baptist preaches about judgment and Jesus is the judge. And that's our first point this morning, that Jesus is the one who's appointed judge of all men. John warns of it. Jesus will exercise it. While John can warn about it, Christ is the judge. 
And we see it in a couple of, of ways in our text. We saw it there with the, 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 John says, I baptize with water. Jesus baptized with the Spirit and with fire. Now, I'd love to sort of trail off and talk about baptism with the Spirit and what that means, but I'm here to talk about fire, right? This is the Judgment and Mercy Conference. And so he says he's going to baptize with this, this, this fire. You know, as I began to walk through Luke earlier with, with our church, I had just finished Malachi, and I realized like these big overlaps between Malachi and Luke, and that was just God's grace. That wasn't me knowing anything or being smart about it. But in Malachi, you see this, this coming judgment, this day that's coming is going to be associated with fire. In fact, Malachi said, who can endure the day of his coming? Who can endure that day? Who can stand when he appears? For he is a refiner's fire. So Malachi, again, you see this overlap with Luke. You see these promises, in fact, of John the Baptist's coming. The Lord's coming will be a fiery ordeal. And in Malachi, this fire, it'll do one of two things depending on how you relate to the Lord. It can be a refiner's fire that purifies and cleanses, or it can be a consuming fire for the unrighteous. For those who remain in their sin, it's a consuming fire. It's a judgment. In fact, verse 17 in our text helps us understand what this means to be baptized with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. You know, this, this winnowing fork was, was a tool that they would use to sort of pick up, pick up the wheat and throw it in the air, and the, and the chaff would be blown away, or, and that which was valuable, the grain, it would sort of, sort of fall to the ground and, and be able to be gathered up, and then that chaff that had sort of got blown away, it would be gathered up, and then it would be burned. And so there's this warning in the text that Jesus, the divine, the divine judge, his, his winnowing fork is in his hand. The idea is judgment's near. He's got the fork. He's going to separate the chaff from the wheat. So we learn a few things about judgment as we think about that term, unquenchable fire. First, we see that, that, that judgment this judgment that Christ has been appointed to bring, it is, it is unending. It is unquenchable. It's so easy, you know, even in our small group earlier, we were just talking about how it's so easy just to think about that this life is all there is. Even those of us who, who know better, we still tend to live in the present and just think about today. But we're reminded as we think about this judgment that yes, our time on earth here, it matters. But it's not all that matters. We are created eternal beings and we will live forever somewhere. And those who reject Christ face the judgment and wrath of God for all eternity. We see also that this judgment is decisive. You don't sense a lot of, a lot of wavering in the text, do you? His winnowing fork is in his hand. He's going to separate the wheat from the chaff. This judgment is decisive. There's no wavering on the day of judgment. There will be no tricking Christ as to where you stand. 
He knows every heart. He knows every deed. And as God, he abhors every sin. And as the appointed judge, he gives the proper judgment. And we also think about this judgment is irreversible. It's unquenchable fire. When this judgment falls, it cannot and will not be reversed. Jesus spoke of an eternal, fiery judgment for those who remain in their rebellion to him and to, and to the Father. Think of the way the, the, the New Testament describes this judgment. Jesus said it's a place where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. He called it outer darkness in Matthew 8, the furnace of fire in Matthew 13. In Luke 13, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And one of the more clear passages from the Apostle Paul, 2 Thessalonians 1.9, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. This is... This is the warning that John the Baptist is giving. That Jesus has come and the winnowing fork is in his hand. He's, he's the, the one who has come and been appointed judge. We see similar language earlier in the chapter, chapter 3, verse 7. I don't, I don't think I have these verses up. But look at verse 7 there if you have your Bible in front of you. This is John the Baptist. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And then drop down to verse 9. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, the other gospel writers tell us uh, this crowd was made up by and large of Pharisees, Sadducees, they're, they're religious leaders. And so as they come out, they assume, well, maybe this baptism from John will, will help me. And so Jesus calls, or John calls them actually a brood of vipers. Who warns you to flee? You know, these religious leaders are called a brood of vipers. The, the seed of the serpent opposed to God. Who warns you to come out and, and flee to me? You think that this is act of baptism will help you? Well, John, he tells them, like my baptism and your, your physical lineage as Israelites and even, even uh, leaders in Israel, they're not gonna be, they're not gonna be sufficient. They're not going to be sufficient. If you remain in your unbelief, and they don't turn to Christ, they remain under the wrath of God. In fact, the axe is laid at the base of the tree. The idea is that, that, that it's there, and the judgment, it's pending, it's coming. It's close. And the unfruitful trees will be cut down and, and burned with fire. Now, Obviously, John's talking to leaders in, in Israel. There's a sense in which God, God judges in, in the here and now. Jeff talked about some of those instances of, of the wrath of God being demonstrated here and now. And in 70 AD, Israel was judged in that sense as the, the temple was destroyed. 
But the emphasis here seems to fall on future judgment on every individual who rejects Christ. Notice in the text, it's, it's even now, every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit. It's every tree. Every tree that does not bear good, tr- good fruit is chopped down and thrown into the fire. So the axe is laid at the base of the tree. The winnowing fork is in his hands. And Jesus is the, the one who has come to judge. You know, it's naive it's naive to think then, well, the judgment is, is far off. The judgment is something that I can worry about at some future point. Maybe, you know, I, 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 we were sitting around the table with a bunch of college-age kids. Well, I don't have to worry about that now, right? I'll reckon with, with Jesus at a future date. It's a naive hope to say the judgment is far off. And as we looked at that, phrase, the unquenchable fire, it's, it's naive to think something like, oh, well, hell will be fun because all my friends are there. Or it's naive to think, man, I don't view God that way. I view God as sort of a cosmic grandpa who, you know, I don't know what kind of grandparents you had. I had grandparents. I only got in trouble one time. And it's because my, my grandma and grandpa had this pool and they had this duck that sort of held the chlorine and it floated around. And I got so mad at my brother that I threw that duck at him and hit him in the side of the head. That's the only time I've ever seen my grandma mad. Right? Grandparents, oftentimes, I know that's not true for everybody, they, they don't exercise the sort of discipline. So we can, it's naive to think, man, God is just sort of a cosmic grandpa, just sort of overlooks, sees only the good of me, doesn't see the bad of me. My parents discipline me. Grandpa doesn't. It's naive. It's naive because God can and does judge sin, and he cannot do otherwise. He cannot do otherwise. To do anything else would be to deny himself. So he judges sin. But there's hope. There's hope here. There's hope for us in the text. Look in verse 18, chapter 3, verse 18. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. Now remember what John just said. The, the ax is laid at the base of the tree. The, the trees without fruit are going to be chopped up and they're going to be burned. The winnowing fork is in his hand. The chaff is going to be burned with unquenching fire. So with many other exhortations, he continued to preach good news to them. The idea is that John preached a lot more sermons like what he just said. He continued to preach this sort of way. And it's interesting then that that sort of preaching would be characterized by Luke as good news. Well, how is that? And that's our second point. If you're a note taker, that's cool. I'm more of a listener. But if you're taking notes, point number two, Jesus is the one to whom we flee from the righteous judgment. How's it good news to be warned? Well, the, the, the warning of, of impending judgment is uncomfortable, right? I can feel it even as we're walking through those texts. Unquenchable fire, that's, that's uncomfortable. But ultimately, it's a loving warning. And I think this is where I'll overlap some with, with Jeff. It's a loving warning that's meant to lead its hearers to hear the good news. 
to hear the good news. I think these two ideas come together in Acts, and, and it's sort of where I borrowed the language that Jesus is the divinely appointed judge. In Acts 17, verse 30 and 31, God commands everyone everywhere to repent. Why? Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world. So this, this appointment of Jesus as the one who will judge the world you know, and going on in, in Acts 17, he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Well, who's the man? It's the one who's been resurrected. That's what the text says. And this, and of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So the one who has been raised from the dead is the one who has been appointed judge. So therefore, repent. There's this warning. Judgment is coming. Jesus has been resurrected. He's been appointed the judge. Now turn to him. And this is consistent throughout the Bible. Consider, I know I'm doing New Testament, but I'm, I'm going to think about Jonah for a minute. And you can flip to Jonah 3 if you want. You don't, you don't have to, whatever. Um, but think about Jonah. Let me get there. The Ninevites were some of the most wicked people around, right? We, we, we even discuss that in our group. They were ungodly, wicked. We can look at Jonah and laugh at him, but the reality is it would be like you rejoicing in the salvation of somebody who planned 9-11, right? That sort of enemy. If anyone deserved the judgment to fall, it was the ruthless, wicked Ninevites. And notice then Jonah's message. This is what Jonah says. Jonah began in verse 4 to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's it. That's his sermon. You're going to be destroyed in 30 days. Now look at verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They heard the warning. They believed it. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And when the word reaches the king that Jonah has come with this message that we're going to be destroyed in 40 days. This is what the king says in verse 8. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. What was the good news that was preached to the Ninevites? In 40 days, you're going to be overthrown. Well, it was good news because it was a warning to them and implied within the warning that if you turn from your violence and you turn from your wickedness, this disaster that's coming, it will be turned away. The good news that was preached to them sure sounded a lot like judgment. And the same is true in, in our chapter, back in Luke chapter 3. Of course, I lost my place there. The same thing is true in our text. As many were coming out to be baptized, a lot of these religious leaders were coming out and again, John said, you brood of vipers, 
right? That's what we say to all our baptism candidates. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee? No. But what does he tell them to do there in chapter three? Quit relying on your heritage. Who, who told you to come be baptized? What he tells them to do is what was implied in Jonah's message. Turn. Turn, repent, and bear fruit consistent with your repentance. So as we think about how we might apply this, then we can, we can see why this call to repent, this truth of Jesus' judgment, we can see why the message of the gospel is increasingly being seen as, as offensive and harmful. Right? And so as a, as a church, I just, or as churches, I just want to remind us that we don't actually have to add offense to the gospel. You know, I had this old mentor of mine. He would call people jerks for Jesus. You know, we don't have to be that. We don't have to stir up the hornet's nest unnecessarily and then cry, woe is me. But we ought to prepare ourselves for suffering for the sake of the gospel. Suffering for the sake of the gospel. You see, more, more and more, sort of the dominant understanding of man and the dominant belief system in our culture is that if you can't fulfill every desire of your heart, then whoever's in the way of that hates you. And so when you come with the message of the gospel to turn from your sin and to embrace Christ, to give your life, very life to him, man, that's an offensive message. Because if, for, for me to give up the desires of my heart is for me not to be authentic to my true self and I can't express who I am. Interestingly though, this, the offensiveness of this message, it isn't, it isn't new, right? We're starting to feel it a little more in our culture, but it, it, it isn't new. In chapter three here in verse 19, John the Baptist gets imprisoned for it. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. So here's John the Baptist in front of Herod. Repent. You've taken your brother's wife, and there's a lot of other evil things that you've done that we don't get explained to us here in the text. And you know, Herod should have done what, what some of the crowd does early in the chapter and said, what must I do? What must I do? And then he could, be, and, and then he could seek repentance. But instead he seeks to put away the source of the exposure. The one who was preaching at him to repent. I'll just throw him in prison and eventually have him killed. Again, the, the reality is the preaching of the gospel will be opposed because Jesus will be opposed. There was a man named Simeon in chapter 2 who said that Jesus will be a sign of stumbling and, and offense. He'll be opposed by many. So we must be steadfast, right, and, and willing to talk about these warnings of judgment 
Why? Because these are the very things, these warnings are the very things, even though they're not popular, that God uses to turn his people to himself. As the warning goes out, it's a call to turn and run to Christ. The one who not only judges, but came to spare from the judgment. And if we minimize the reality of some of these words that we just talked about, this unquenchable, unquenchable fire, worm does not die, if we minimize the wrath, if we minimize the judgment, then we minimize the rescue that we have in Christ. You see, the coming of Christ is good news because he came to rescue from this fiery judgment and to deliver us to eternal glory in the presence of God. He's not only the appointed judge, he's the cleft in the rock to which we run. So embedded in the warning of judgment is this call to repentance unto salvation. Embedded in the warnings is the kindness of the Lord compelling us to turn to him. There's a Dutch theologian named Bavink, and he says, he says this way, it's a little bit of a lengthy quote, but, but follow me. He says, when you wish to do something evil, you retire from the public into your house where no enemy may see you. From those places of your house which are open and visible to the eyes of men, you remove yourself into your room. Even in our room, you fear some witness from another quarter. You retire into your heart. There you meditate. He, God, is more inward than your heart. Wherever, therefore, you shall have fled, there he is. From yourself, whither will you flee? Will you not follow yourself wherever you shall flee? But since there is one more inward even than yourself, there is no place where you may flee from God's anger but to God reconciled. There is no place at all whither you may flee. Will you flee from him? Flee to him. He says, you, you, you want to you avoid God by sort of uh, secluding yourself in your home and you, you know it's evil, so then you go into your bedroom and, and you're still afraid that somebody might see you, so you meditate on wickedness in your heart. He says, God is more inward than your heart. You can't flee. You can't flee. You can't flee from him, but you can flee to him. You can flee to him. You must flee to him. So then we're, we're left then with this Final question. What, what qualifies Jesus to be that, that cleft in the rock? Since God cannot change, and because God is just and merciful, then his judgment cannot just disappear. It must be satisfied. And so, so the burden I have is to, to, to demonstrate that Jesus is the righteous representative of man and substitute. So that's point number three. Jesus is able to be our refuge because he is our righteous representative and substitute. Let's keep going in chapter three. Look at verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized, Baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. So 
Luke flows right in from these, these warnings, Jesus is the righteous judge, to then this, this scene of baptism. But Luke, it doesn't seem overly concerned about the details of Jesus' baptism. He's more concerned about what follows the baptism. He's more concerned about relaying this, this falling of the Spirit like a dove onto Jesus and the Father's words from heaven, the announcement from the Father that this is the beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And so you see this dove descending on Jesus. This was a a, a public, visible picture that Jesus is the the anointed one who has come to bring the Spirit. It It is the announcement that he is the one spoken of in Isaiah chapter 61, where it says, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. The, the spirit descending on Jesus is the, is the announcement that he's the long-awaited Savior that he's the one that's been promised from the prophets. And then, G- and then God the Father speaks from heaven, announcing that this is the beloved Son. The Father endorses Jesus in that sense. What was pictured in the anointing is, is very publicly stated by God the Father. This is my Son with whom I am well pleased. And so Jesus is authenticated as the beloved, well-pleasing Son of God. And that's what Luke's concern is to demonstrate that Jesus is the Son of God. And some people get a little wonky on this, and they will say, oh, this is the moment Jesus becomes the Son of God. That's not, that's not true, right? We don't, we don't have to spend a ton of time there, but he's been the Son from all eternity. He arrived here on earth. He wasn't created here on earth. And so he is, he's the beloved Son from all eternity, and this is his role. This is his role in the history of redemption. It doesn't mean that he's inferior to the Father. It describes his eternal relationship with the Father and with the Spirit. And it describes the role that Jesus will play here in accomplishing our salvation. Specifically, it points to something that might not come immediately to our minds. When we hear God's son, we, we, we immediately think intimate, close relationship, which is true. But it was meant to indicate something more than that. It was meant to indicate a kingly authority and rule. If you read, we don't have time necessarily to, to go here, but if you read the Davidic covenants, the idea is that these, these kings will come from David's line and they'll be like a son. They'll be like a son to God. And as a son, they were meant to represent the will of their father to the people. Well, we know that they all failed, right? They all failed to represent God. They all failed to represent God's will. And so what you have in the announcement is not a son, not a king of Israel. You have the son who has bestowed this royal status. And he's come to represent God to his people. He's the true king of God's people. And it's affirmed from heaven. And God the Father announces, not only is he my son, but I am well pleased in him. I am well pleased with him. The Father delights in Christ. What does God delight in? 
righteousness and justice. And Jesus will walk in righteousness and justice. He will be perfectly righteous. He will deliver perfect justice. And in everything Jesus does, he brings joy and glory to the Father. There is no taint of sin in him, as Jeff mentioned. There is no darkness in him. You know, it seems like every week some prominent pastor fails. Pick up a popular Christian book that was popular five years ago and read who endorsed it and see how many of those men were not exposed. And we might be tempted, man, can we trust any Christian leader? Well, what we have in this announcement is there is no dark side to Jesus. There is nothing that's going to come out that's going to expose him for who he really is as a duplicitous leader. Jesus was and is and will always be the constant delight and good pleasure of the Father. He's the Son of God, and it's announced from heaven. And then Luke does something else that's that's interesting. Then he goes right into this long genealogy. And we want to be like, okay, I get to skip these 15 verses or whatever they are. Check my Bible reading plan off because it's just a bunch of names, right? But you got to ask, why here? Matthew starts with a genealogy. Why does Luke wait till after the baptism? What's going on here? Matthew starts with, with Abraham, and he sort, of, he sort of works his way to Jesus. But what Luke does is he starts with Jesus, and he kind of works his way backwards. So, so in Matthew, what you have, the father of, the father of, the father of. In Luke, what you have is the son of, the son of, the son of. And then you get all the way down to the end of the genealogy and you read this. The son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Luke very intentionally wants to go all the way back to Adam and he wants to call Adam the son of God right after he just called Jesus the son of God. Of God. That's why he doesn't start in the past and move forward. He starts with Jesus and he moves backwards. And so, uh, you know, a question that's interesting to ponder is besides Jesus, and I just probably gave away my answer, but who's the second most important person in the history of the world? It's Adam, right? We might want to say, oh, maybe it's the Apostle Paul, maybe it's somebody else. It's actually Adam. And he's called here the, the, the son of God. He's descended directly from God. God sort of formed him from the dust of the ground. He breathed into him the breath of life. And so what you have in Luke is you have these two sons of God. You have Adam and you have Jesus. And they both stand as representatives. They're obviously different, right? Don't read too much into Adam being called a son of God. It's not to say that he's divine in any way. But it's to make this point that these two are unique in the sense that they represent others by their actions. And so in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and 3, Adam, Adam is up to bat. And he strikes out rather quickly. Right? He's given one prohibition and he breaks it almost immediately. 
And as a representative, this cosmic act of betrayal casts all of humanity into sin. There's consequences for this sin. Every person, including you and I, has been born then with this disposition against the Lord. We're born dead in trespasses and sins. We're born guilty of sin. And so that's what Adam's actions did as a representative. And and here in Luke, you see the beloved son, he's come. And he's descended from Adam, actually. And he will represent God to man and man to God. And how will he do? How will Jesus do? Adam in the garden, in fellowship with God, failed miserably. And then in chapter 4 of Luke, Jesus goes out in the wilderness and he resists every temptation. Jesus passes where Adam failed. He resists every temptation in the wilderness where Adam could not resist any temptation in the garden. And in Jesus' perfect obedience, he demonstrates that he is indeed son of God and he is indeed son of Adam. And he's the savior who's come to reverse the curse that Adam brought. Right, the apostle Paul makes this really clear. In, in Luke, we have it sort of in narratival form, how it's sort of playing out and it doesn't seem accidental the way Luke plays this out. But in Romans chapter five, the apostle Paul says this. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one... As by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So Jesus, as the Son of God, and as the incarnate Son of Adam in that sense, he's perfectly equipped to be our representative and substitute. To represent us before the Father. And he was constantly and always acting and living to the good pleasure of his father. Consider that. Never one illicit thought. Never one unloving word. Never one sinful action. So we might ask, how how do judgment and mercy fit together in the New Testament? It's that Jesus, the Son of God, took upon himself the righteous requirement of the law. He fulfilled it. And he took upon himself the punishment that the law demanded. You know, to think about Jeff's text. He did Leviticus 26. And he took the curses that belonged to those who did not do Leviticus 26. So that all those who hear the warning of the judgment might turn to him. And be credited with his perfect life, his righteousness. So he was not suffering for his own sin, but for ours. And in his life and his obedience, he represents us. He acted for us so that we are credited with his perfection. He stood as our representative because he is the son of God and the son of Adam. So what do we, what do, we do with this? What do, what, what do we do with all this? That Jesus is the appointed judge of all men. 
and that Jesus is the one who is the constant delight of the Father, that he is the son of Adam who represents man. It's, it's at this. When you come to Christ through faith, you are united with him. You are so grafted into him that his very perfect, righteous life is credited to you. You are one with him. Not, you're, not, you're not righteous because you're righteous in and of yourself, but because Jesus was righteous and you're in Christ. And now you're credited with his righteousness. Positionally, when we come to Christ, we're united with him in such a way that God delights in his people. The way he delights in his son. You become the beneficiary of God's good pleasure, of God's smile because you are in Christ. There's this prayer in the, the Valley of Vision that goes this way. I am always going into the far country and always returning home as a prodigal, always saying, Father, forgive me, and thou art always bringing forth the best robe. Every morning let me wear it, every evening return in it, go out to the day's work in it, be married in it, be wounded in death in it. Stand before the great white throne in, in it. Enter heaven in its shining as the sun. Grant me never to lose sight of the exceeding sinfulness of sin, the exceeding righteousness of salvation, the exceeding glory of Christ, the exceeding beauty of holiness, the exceeding wonder of grace. What's the robe? What's the robe that he wants to go out in and die in and be clothed in and be reminded of? It's the robe of Christ's righteousness. And if you put it on, as God is well pleased with the Son, he is well pleased with you and will be on the day of judgment. Will be on the day of judgment. God has always and will always love goodness and hate wickedness. And for those that are found in Christ Jesus, they are beloved forever. That's never to change. Never to experience the wrath of God because you've been robed with the very righteousness of Christ as our righteous substitute and representative. Let's pray together. Lord God, thank you for Christ who not only has been appointed judge of all men, but by those very warnings, you've turned hearts to you. Lord, you've opened eyes to see the glory of the gospel. May you be glorified in us and the rest of this conference. Thank you for Jesus. In his name, amen.